Our text for today comes from 2 Timothy 3, verses 17, uh, 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Ash. It's good to see you guys today. Okay. Oh, geez. No, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Once every seven years, my birthday falls on a Sunday, and then that, that has to happen. Uh, no, it's good. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, we'll ditch that recording. All right. Thanks for being here this morning. Uh, it's good to see everybody. It kind of feels like the year is kicking off today for church, which is a good feeling. Uh, as Ashley said, uh, we're continuing in the year of biblical literacy um, today and really throughout the year. If you're reading along with us, you're through like Joseph and Egypt and all of that. Uh, uh, I think we'll be done with the book of Genesis by like Thursday. So congratulations if you're reading along with us. You have completed an entire book of the Bible. Uh, you'll be into Exodus, which gets even crazier than Genesis. So uh, buckle up. Uh, but today... Uh, we're beginning what is really going to be a two-part series. So um, my intention today was to speak on the origins of the Bible and really talk specifically about uh, the nuts and bolts of how we got the book that you ha some of you have on your laps and others of you have on your phones. I really wanted to dig down deep into that. But when I was preparing this week, what I realized was there was, there was a need for a little bit of a preliminary message. We actually had to talk about the nature or the kind of character of the book that you have in front of you before we can really talk, get into the nuts and bolts of how we got it. And so today, we're do really doing the first part of a two-part series. First today, the nature of the Bible, and then next week, the origins of the Bible, so how we actually received it. But, uh, but this week, uh, we're going to hop right into the text, all right? We're going to hop right into our teaching text and see where it leads us this morning. Sound good? Yeah, say thanks. I like, I like the talk back. So this passage that Ashley read for us, uh, that you heard, just heard read aloud, was a, was a letter, is an ancient letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his friend and his apprentice, a guy named Timothy. Now, Timothy was pastoring and leading a church that Paul had planted in the city of Ephesus. It was one of the most famous churches that Paul planted and one of the most successful church planting experiences of Paul's life. Ephesus, as a city, was large, it was important, it was diverse, and it was difficult. And so Paul is writing to Timothy to encourage his son in the faith, which is how he opens, how he addresses Timothy at the beginning of this book, as to how he should go about the business of pastoring this church. What is it that's important? What does he need to stick close to? What are the ideas he needs to embrace in order to pastor this church well, this church that Paul cares about very deeply because he planted it, and this person who Paul cares about very deeply because he fathered him in the faith? And what Paul says to Timothy, what the, the passage of Scripture that we have today, what Paul says to Timothy, what the thing he wants to emphasize for him as he gives him this charge near the end of this letter, 
Paul wants to emphasize to him the, the importance of him sticking close to what he calls the graphe. That's Greek for the writings or the scriptures. Paul says that the scriptures are these important things. It's vital in the life of Timothy as he pastors and leads the Ephesian church that he stick close to the scriptures and that these scriptures have a kind of authority. They have a power, in Paul's words, to instruct and to correct and to do all of the business that Timothy has to go about doing as the pastor of this big, complicated church. The other thing that's interesting and kind of ties back into what we talked about last week about how the scriptures all point to Jesus is that in verse 16, if you look closely, Paul says that specifically that these scriptures, what? They lead us to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? And, the, and the, the language that Paul uses to describe why these graphe, why these writings, why these scriptures are so powerful, why they're so potent, why they have this ability is because they are God-breathed. They are God-breathed. Now, that two words in English is just one word in Greek. Uh, it's theopneumatos. There you go. Have a nice day. That's two words, right? It's a compound word, theos, which is God, and pneuma, which is wind, breath, or spirit. It's just slammed together, and, it, and what you get is God-breathed. There's your Greek lesson for today. Well, let's keep it moving. Uh, Here's what the New Testament scholar Ben Witherington says about this really interesting word that, God, that Paul uses to define uh, the, the scriptures, God-breathed. This is what uh, Ben Witherington says. He says, what is meant is that God speaks through these words. God breathed life and meaning and truth into them. Now, many of you have been reading through the Bible this year with us, and we're still in Genesis and if, you're, and if you're familiar with the beginning of Genesis, you've heard this phrase before, or you've heard something similar to it, right? God breathed. The, where God breathes life into humanity. You remember this? When God forms Adam out of the dust of the earth, and the thing that gives him his animating force, the thing that gives the Adam, the man, life, is God's breath. And Paul is playing off that idea here. I really think he is. Paul is arguing that the scriptures have value, that they have authority, that they have power and relevance because they have been imbued with those things by God's breath, by his animating force. God has given himself to these texts and made them effective. Does that make sense? For Paul, the scriptures have authority because they are this special, inspired kind of divine communication and this is an idea, this idea that the scriptures are God-breathed, is an idea that all Christians, basically throughout all of time, across denominational lines and down through history, have basically agreed on. We, it's, there's, there's not much we agree on, let's be honest, right? But we seem to agree on this. What's interesting is this passage in 2 Timothy, our teaching text for today, is one of the most quoted passages by the church fathers. Now, the church fathers were church leaders in the first, like, 300 years of the church. As the canon of Scripture, the New Testament that we understand was actually being formed, and people were having discussions about what, what should go in the Bible and what shouldn't go in the Bible. Even in, even in the midst of that time, the church fathers were adamant about this idea that Scripture is God-breathed, that it is valuable, that it has some type of authority to it. And all Christians seem to kind of agree on this. 
Now, we often disagree about things too, right? About what a particular passage might say or how it should be read or how it applies to our lives. And that is a whole other can of worms for another day. But nearly all Christians believe that the Bible is God's special communication and that it forms the bedrock of what we understand about God and how we need to live out our relationship with God. When Christians talk about why we look at the scriptures as an authority in our lives, we say that it is because they are God-breathed. And truth be told, if you believe that that, right, if you believe that statement, and you kind of live your life based off of it, that the scriptures are God-breathed, that they're reliable, that they're inspired, that they're authoritative, that they have some, um, they, that they carry weight in your life over and above every other book, and you read the Bible well, allowing it to point you to the person of Jesus, there isn't really a necessity for you to go any further and ask questions. Not if you don't want to, right? If you read the Bible like that and you trust it, and it, there's not really a need for you to go any further. And here's the analogy I like to use. Some of us in this place are product over process people. Do you know what I mean by that? So a product over process person is like, I got an iPhone. It works. I don't care how it works, right? As long as it works. It does, I don't ask questions until it stops working, right? That's, that's when we start asking questions. You're a product over process people. You don't need to ask deeper questions, and that's fine. That's just a personality trait, and it's completely appropriate. But there are also process over product people, correct? The type of people that need to, like, pull an engine apart and figure out how it works, Dick. Um, I'm talking to you, Dick, back there. Uh, <laughs> uh, and process over product people might ask these questions, like, how did we get the Bible in its current form, right? Who decided which books of the Bible qualified as God-breathed and need to be in the Bible and which ones don't, right? These are process over product people. And I'm sure we have some process over product people in the room today. And you, you like I said, you like to pull something apart. You need, like to turn it over. You like to look at things from different angles. And you might be asking these questions, Right? And that's good too, whichever side of the aisle you fall on. But the reason I want to kind of dig into the process of the Bible and ask these questions about what it is over the next couple of weeks is that, is that because regardless of whether you're a product or a process person, the truth of the matter is that these are questions that our culture is asking. These are questions that your kids will ask you. <laughs> like you better, and you better have an answer, Right? Because gone are the days when the Bible is simply uniformly accepted as an authority in people's life, right? Like, there, there was once a time where people at least paid lip service to the idea that the Bible had some type of cultural authority that other books didn't have, right? And you could kind of quote the Bible and people would just assume, yeah, he's probably right, he quoted the Bible, right? But those days are out the window, right? The Bible Maybe for some people, the Bible is kind of a book with some authority because it's like holy or it's ancient and it's kind of on par with other holy and ancient books. And so there's some collected wisdom down through history that people give value to. Maybe they think of it that, like that. But more and more and more in our culture, really, the Bible is not seen as even a good thing. It's seen as a kind of regressive book, something that, keep, that oppresses people, women and uh, minorities and those types of things. People view the Bible as this way, and so they think it's something that just needs to be jettisoned. And so, in a culture like that, I think it's really important that we ask some of these deeper questions about the nature of the Bible, how we received this book, and why it's important and valuable for our lives. 
Because we're gonna, because in the culture in which we live today, we need to have answers for these questions. We really do. Now, you don't need to be a Bible scholar. You don't need to say big Greek words like I did that were pointless. Uh, you don't need to pointlessly show people that you kind of know a little Greek. Like, it's not, I'm sorry, I'm arrogant, and I'm 36. <laughs> and after you're 35, you just do what you want. Uh, but, except for Carol. Carol's not allowed to do what she wants. Uh, the truth is that we, we, need, we need to be equipped with this information, right? We need to think deeply about these ideas so that we can engage well in a culture that is asking these questions. And so that's why we're delving into today. So that's what I'm going to do for the rest of this morning. I'm really going to talk about the nature of the Bible, what it is. And this is a preliminary message to next week because what I realize is that if we don't set up next week's message and we talk about the nitty-gritty of how we got the Bible in its current form, it's kind of off-putting if we don't first lay the bedrock of understanding what the Bible is at its core or in its nature. And so that's where we're going today. And this, I promise, will be great. It'll be great. All right? All right. So when we talk about the nature of the Bible, the question we are asking is what kind of book is it? What kind of book is it? Uh, and the best place to go to try to figure out what type of book the Bible is or what it, how it intends to be read is to go to the Bible itself, sh- shockingly. That's a really good place to start, actually, because I think it tells us what type of book it is. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to the uh, book of Exodus. That's Genesis, Exodus, chapter 17, verse 14. With me for just a moment. I'll give you guys a second to turn and get there. What we find in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, is the very first instance of the Bible referencing itself. This is the very first insight we get into why it was actually written down, why it became a book. So uh, this this is what we read in verse 14 of uh, chapter 17 of the book of Exodus. It reads this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, And make sure that uh, Joseph hears it, or Joshua hears it. Write this on a scroll. God says to Moses, after the Israelites defeated some of their enemies, uh, write this down, because you need to remember this, right? And this is the first instance we have of God instructing anybody to write anything down in the Bible. And God says this multiple times to Moses throughout, uh, throughout the Pentateuch, throughout the first five books of the Bible, And Moses does this. Moses writes it down so that, in the words of God, it can be remembered. It can be remembered. The first instance in the Bible about the writing of the Bible is not a list of rules, right? It is a story. It is a story that God says needs to be remembered. And this, I think, is one of, if not the most important things that you understand this morning— And that is that God worked through people to write the Bible. All right? That seems very plain and on the surface, right? You know Paul wrote letters. You know different people wrote different books. But this is really important. People, people like you and me, wrote the Bible. They did. This is how we got it. And this is important because it tells us something about the nature of the Bible But I also think it says something really interesting about the character of a God who would work this way with people in order to bring the Bible about. 
all right? When we read the Bible, we are not reading a book written on golden tablets that fell from the sky like a kind of comet or meteor, right? This is not what we have. We are reading a document written in a specific time to a specific people for a specific purpose, right? God says to Moses, write this down because it's important that we remember, but also make sure Joshua knows this, right? This, he had a re, God instructs Moses. There's a reason why they wrote this, right? Now, uh, the fact that the Bible was specific, that it's specific to a time and a place and a culture and a language is common knowledge, but it's not something we consider as essential to the nature of the Bible. Sometimes we think of it as just like a hurdle we have to jump over to get to God's truth. But I think in some sense, it is actually inherently good. It's something that's, that is intended about the Bible. Because, uh, and because we want to see the Bible as something more, I think, than just a book that fell out of heaven. I think it's important that we see the Bible as that. Because this Bible is the story of God's interaction with his people in history. In history. This is why the, book of the, the books of the Bible are primarily written in languages that we don't speak, right? Two different languages, Hebrew and Greek. There's a third language, Aramaic, that's thrown in there a little bit in like the book of Daniel and places like that. But because, uh, but because this is the story of God's interaction with a specific people at a specific time and a specific point in history, it carries the flavors, the context, the nuance, the oddities of those people, Right? This is why, inherently, if you've been reading along with us so far in the book of Genesis, you've come across something that's made you go, huh, I have no idea what that could have meant, right? Because it it is flavored with the culture, the perspective, and the time and place that it was written. And this is really important, I think, because it shows us that God revealed himself to people, they experienced God, and then in their own language, in their own understanding of the world, they wrote about that encounter. And this fact makes some people uncomfortable. Because, because when we think about the Bible, what we want to do, like we talked about last week, is we want to make it a flat text. We want to turn it into something like a mechanics manual or like a Lego um, book, right, that just tells you, like, put the four peg, that might have son who plays Legos, but, you know, this, you put this block on this block on this block on this block, and then you have a Lego dragon. I don't know, right? Or, in this case, the salvation of your soul. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that, that's what we want, right? We want the Bible to be a flat text. But, but the truth of the matter is, is the Bible has all of these strange little nooks and crannies to it, right? It has all these nuances. It has all these oddities. And, and, and it seems, it seems when we read the Bible that this is the way that God wanted it. This is the way that God actually wanted it. We want rules to live by, right? We want basic ex- instructions before leaving earth, if you remember that song when you were growing up. Or maybe it's just me because I grew up in the 90s. Uh, but this is, a very human, this is a very human document, the Bible, or a series of documents. And yet, and yet, in some miraculous way, it is also divine. It is God-breathed. And I think this is the way that God wants us to understand him as well. 
And while this might make things a bit complicated, why it, why it means that we need to put forth a little bit of effort to read and understand the Bible, and why it, why it means that like first people needed to write the Bible, and then the Bi- and then those writings needed to be preserved by being copied and reproduced over and over and over again, and then someone had to go and learn ancient Greek. Uh, in Hebrew and find these ancient documents, right? Dig them out of the sand in some cases and translate them over and over and over again throughout the Middle Ages until we had the printing press in order that for them to get to us today. And then somebody had to retranslate them because language changes every five or ten years and then they had to edit them and then they had to compile them and then they had to put them in a book and then you have the book and the book is authoritative, right? Even though that's the process by which the Bible came to be with us, The nature of the Bible as being a very human, yet a God-breathed thing, is also beautiful. It's beautiful. This is the way N.T. Wright puts it when he talks about this process of the way we got the Bible. He says, and this is itself an expression of his, God's, love. Because he does not will simply to come into the world in a blinding flash of light and obliterate all opposition. He wants to reveal himself meaningfully within space-time, within the space-time universe, not just passing it by tangentially, to reveal himself in judgment and in mercy in a way which will save people. God did not reveal his divine will to us by dropping the book out of the sky. That would be too impersonal for this relational God. But rather, he embeds himself and the revelation about who he is within the history, within the works of humanity. Within the history of humanity, he embeds his life and he chooses to reveal himself there amidst the mess, amidst the discomfort, amidst all of the sin and all of the junk. This is the place where God chooses to reveal himself. And he works through those very people in order to give us the book which tells us who this God is. So when you run across something in the Bible that seems strange or gives you pause or is super hard to understand, you can actually be kind of encouraged, I think, because you are reading something that reveals the heart of a God who wants to be close to people, who refuses to be separated from people, who refuses to speak for himself outside of relationship with people. This is the nature of the Bible. And he wants to reveal who he is through those relationships. And just FYI, those people weren't perfect, right? But God still worked through them, telling his story through his involvement in their lives. Do you ever think of that? God chooses to tell us who he is by the ways in which he involves himself in our lives. God chooses to reveal his love and his nature through the ways in which he related to people in the scriptures, through the story of the Bible. The God of history is one who steps out of time eternal and inserts himself into the chaos of our existence. And this is why the Bible, being a human and divine book, is so very important and why it's so beautiful. Because God is a God who reveals himself in the middle of our chaos. That's where we find God. It's not just like some perfect rule book, right? That we just have to etch on a 10-foot obelisk, right? And we just go, what do, it's Tuesday. What do I got to do on Tuesday? Oh, right? That's not how it works. That's not how God works. In the middle of 
the broke reveals himself in the middle of our chaos. And in the middle of the brokenness of the Bible and the brokenness of the people of the Bible and the, the oddities of this, this strange foreign group of people, God reveals himself and he breathes his life, his spirit on these words and they somehow become authoritative for us. They somehow reveal to us who this God is. You know, God works in the midst of our human brokenness and our human culture, and he works in the midst of our language, and he works in the midst of our understanding, and he shows us who he is, doesn't he? And it's important that we understand that this is the nature of Scripture, that we understand that it is both God-breathed and inspired, but that it's written by broken people in a chaotic world. And if we miss this, I think we miss something important about the character of God. And can I just say (laughs) for a moment this morning, I want a God who reveals himself in the midst of my chaos, right? Just look at some of the Bible stories that you just, just, here's just a quick primer. Like, is there, have you run across anyone in the scriptures who's like, really got it figured out. Maybe one or two. Joseph, maybe, right? But even he was just like in prison for most of his life, right? He was good. He made some good decisions. But like most of the time, he was just kind of in prison or getting chased by weird women. Uh, The Bible, for the most part, is just people producing problems, right, for themselves. Abraham telling the king of Egypt and other kings that his wife is his sister. He's sleeping with the servant of his wife and producing a son that creates all kinds of problems. Isaac and Rebecca are each picking favorites, which really healthy parenting technique, all right? Like each, you and your wife each pick a favorite and then pit them against one another and things will go well, I assure you, right? It's like these people clearly did not read a book before they had these kids. But yet, in the, in the midst of all of this chaos, it's almost like the hand of God, the character of God is displayed despite their brokenness. And the, and the scriptures become authoritative and inspired, not because these people are perfect, right? Not because the story is neat and tidy, but because the God who is being revealed in and through it is perfect. He is righteous. He is good. And the question for us, I think, When we look at the nature of the Bible, and this is where we get spiritual and applicational this morning, is if God was willing to meet them in their chaos and in their difficulty, why do you think he won't meet yours, you and yours, right? Because the nature of the Bible tells us that that's exactly the place that God meets us, right? Like, when you're too far over the hill, like, that's exactly the place where we find God. Are any of you familiar with Jacob's Ladder, right? We just read that. Jacob literally has to run away from home, right? And it's at that point that God reaffirms his covenant with Jacob. It's like he is literally over the hill and through the woods. He wasn't going to grandma's house. He was going to uncle's house, and he was going to marry his cousin. It's going to get really weird. But, uh... (laughs) But he was over the hill, right? He was a long ways off. 
And yet, in the midst of that place, God finds him, right? And so what makes us think that in the midst of our brokenness, in our situation, God can't find us? If the band could come up, that'd be awesome. He, God works his redemptive plan in the midst of these broken and chaotic situations. What makes us think that he doesn't work his redemptive plan in the midst of our broken and chaotic situations? If the Bible teaches us anything, it is, this is exactly how God works. This is exactly how he works. He works in the midst of our chaos. He works in the midst of our brokenness, and he redeems those of us who have fallen short, which is, FYI, each and every one of us. He fills the womb of a barren woman, right? He does this numerous times in the scripture. He brings life out of dead, uh, dead situations. He speaks in, inspiring words in the, midst, in, in the midst of a group of people who are like running away from him. The God of the scriptures is not the God of the mountaintop. When Moses was on the mountaintop, the people lost their marbles, right? The God, they did. The God of the Bible the God of the Bible is a God of the valley because he's a God who wants to be with us. Right? And let's just be brutally honest for a moment. Um, we live in the valley. Like, you know, if the Hawkeyes ever win the national championship, I'll be on the mountain for like three, maybe four hours. <laughs> I don't know. That was a bad analogy. But, uh, I'm not saying life is always bad. I'm just saying that we're always living human lives, right? We're always living these lives that are unabashedly human. We're always living these lives that are always a little misshapen, that are always a little odd, that are always falling short. We're always living these lives where there's just a little bit more laundry to do, right? We live in the valley. And the God of the Bible is a God of the valley. He's a God that comes to his people in that place and he meets them and he works in the midst of their situation to reveal who he is. And he did that in such a profound way in the scriptures that we have the Bible, right? And he wants to work in your life and in my life and in that way. You know, the, the climax to the story of the scriptures the, the big kind of third climactic act, if you want to look at the Bible as like a five-part play or something, is the coming of Jesus, right? Jesus is the climax of the story. And when Jesus comes, he kind of models the nature of the Bible, doesn't he? Because he comes as a person. He comes into the, to a myth, it comes into the midst of a dark and a broken, fallen world. His parents are good people, but not perfect, right? None of Jesus' followers had it all together. Everything that was swirling around him, both political and cultural, was a mess. He was born in a barn. And yet it is in the midst of that situation that the king of the universe, the incarnate word of God, the one who came to reveal the face and nature of God in its fullest form was born. And it's in that chaotic place that Jesus 
came to show us that there is no depth, there is no darkness, there is no sin within which when he inserts himself, life can't be brought out of it. Because that same child that came into a broken and chaotic situation marched through our broken and chaotic world to the cross. The most debased, the most evil, the most dark place and thing that he could possibly go. And yet even out of that place, the purpose of God was accomplished. The story of God found its greatest climax in the worst possible place. The God of history inserted himself into the gutter to reveal who he was. You know, if, if this God was like a gold tablets out of the sky, like a comet type of God, this God would not have come like this. If this God was scared of your chaos, this God would have never given us this type of book and would never have come in the form of Jesus. This just is not how he would have done it. It's not. But he did. He did. He gave us this book. He literally came to us in the person of Jesus to show us the way. Jesus is like the final punctuation on the end of the sentence about the depths and the distance that God will go to communicate who he is to us. And the people who want to make the Bible, or even Jesus, uh, kind of feel like a magic spell book, right? Have you ever seen those Bible code people? Like when you take the letter E out of the third sentence of the fourth book and you put it with the letter, you know, and you flip three chapters back and you turn around on your head and you turn the Bible upside down, it says you will win a million dollars, you know? Like, I don't know. We want to make the Bible this like kind of magic book of proverbial wisdom and codes and all kinds of stuff. Here's the truth though. I'm sticking with the Bible that looks and smells like people because I want to serve a God who loves people so much that he was willing to come and look and smell like people. Right? Because I believe in a God who loves us so much that he's willing to become a people or a person in order to communicate that. And a God who works through the fingertips and the language and the idioms of people in order to tell us about himself. Because that's just how humble and closely tied to us that God is. And that is a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It tells us something about the nature of the Bible, and it tells us something about the nature of this God. And if that resonates with you, why don't you stand with me this morning? Sound good? Why don't we stand together? I just have the sense that um, if you're in this place this morning and you're in the midst of a human situation, right? Your life might feel a little chaotic. Maybe you're wondering, like, if God can meet me in the midst of whatever it is that I'm going through. I want to assure you that he can. And as we, uh, in just a moment, we're going to have our prayer team come forward and they'd love to pray for you. But um, I just have this sense that maybe we have some people in the room this morning that need to be met in the midst of their chaos by a God who loves to meet us in that place. Just have a sense.
So as we, as we pray, with every head bow and every eye closed, if you're in this place today and you're like, I'm in the midst of the, the, that very human situation you're calling chaos, Nick. I feel a little discombobulated and I don't feel God all that closely and I need God to meet me in the midst of my broken situation. Would you just raise your hand for a moment? Thanks. That's good. That's good. My hand's raised too. My hand's raised too. And I just want to pray for you for a moment. I want to pray that the God of the scriptures, the God who breathed these words and they were inspired, who worked through the fingertips and languages of people to bring them about, the God who incarnated himself in the person of Jesus so that he could be close to us. I just want to pray that that God would meet you in the midst of your situation this morning. So let's pray. Father God, you are the God of our mess. You're the God of our disorder. You're the God of our lives. And so I pray for those of us in this place today that you would meet us, that you would meet us in the midst of our chaos, that you would meet us in the midst of our brokenness, that you would meet us in the midst of our sin, that you'd meet us in that place. And that we would find in you a God who loves us and longs to be close to us. Father, I pray for those in this room who raised their hands that they would get a revelation this morning of a God who loves them. That they would meet this God in a close and personal way. That he would show himself to be faithful and loving to them. And that they would know, they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the God of all the universe longs to be intimately involved in their lives. And there is no part of their lives that he's scared of and that he can't redeem. And we pray it all in the name, the name of Jesus this morning. In the name of Jesus this morning. Amen. And amen. And amen. If our prayer team could come forward. We have a few prayer team members coming forward this morning to pray with you. If you're... Uh, if you're in a place this morning, you're like, yeah, it 